Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode A Mormon in the Dance Department. Today is Thursday, May 7th, 2020. We are hopefully closer to the end of this coronavirus pandemic than we are to the beginning. And I remain committed to putting up a new podcast every weekday. For those of my listeners who may be sheltering at home during this pandemic, today's date of May 7th is a significant date to me personally because it was two years ago on May 7th, 2018, that a person passed away who was very important in my life. And that person was Robert Smith, my first dance teacher. From 1976 to 1979, I studied dance at the Auburn School of Dance and Music located in Auburn, Washington. And Mr. Smith was my dance teacher for every one of the classes that I took there. I started out in September of 1976 in an adult tap class that was held on Friday evenings. The reason I got involved in TAP was because I had been watching old movies on TV. And a lot of those movies that caught my interest were musicals, especially musicals starring Gene Kelly. I loved the athletic way that Gene Kelly danced, and especially when he put on his tap shoes. So I thought that this was something that I wanted to learn more about. I scouted around a bit, and I found an adult tap class being taught not too far from my home, maybe a 15 or 20 minute drive, at the Auburn School of Dance and Music on Friday evenings, and I enrolled. There were maybe about 10 other adults in the class. Now, of course, I was 16 at the time. I was not an adult. But when you're talking about beginning tap class, usually you're either talking about adults or you're talking about little kids. I mean, five or six. And as between those two choices, I figured I better go for the adult class. It was extremely important to me that I keep my dance classes a secret. I mean, everybody in my family knew that I was going to tap class on Friday evenings. But also on Friday evenings, I would meet up over at my friend Bruce's house where all the gang would get together every Friday night and we would hang out there, play a card game called Pounce with Rook cards. Once again, this is the house of a faithful Latter-day Saint, so we're not going to be playing with any face cards, but we played with Rook cards. We would have a great time, but that was a Friday night institution. That's where I always went, and that's where most of these other people always went every Friday night. Well, because of the tap class, I would end up going there a little bit later than I normally did. So I was very concerned that nobody over in Bruce's house, none of my friends from high school, would know that I was taking tap class. So I took steps to ensure that that did not happen. My concern was that when I didn't show up at Bruce's house as early as I usually did, that somebody from Bruce's house would call over to my house and ask where I was and if I was going to be coming. Now, if that phone should happen to be picked up by my mom or my dad, that was easy enough. I told them, just make an excuse. Whatever you do, don't tell them I'm in tap class because I will never hear the end of it. But the other person in the house was my older brother, Cam. He's about a year and a half older than I am, and I was very concerned that Cam would let it slip that I was in tap class. So I sat Cam down, and I made it very clear to him that if somebody should call from Bruce's house and ask where I was on a Friday night and why I wasn't there yet, that he was only to say that I was running a little bit late and I would be there before long. That was it. And I went over that excuse with him multiple times to make sure he had it down pat. Because frankly, Cam was really the weak spot in my defenses. Well, I had not been going to tap class very long. It probably wasn't even by the end of the month of September that the phone call that I anticipated came in and I found out about it after I'd come home from dance class and while I was getting ready to go over to Bruce's house 
on a Friday night in September of 1976, I found out that my brother Cam had picked up the phone, that the question that I had anticipated had been asked, and my brother Cam, true to form, said, he's at dance class. Thank you very much, Cam. So yeah, I had to go over to Bruce's house and I had to endure the ribbing that I figured I'd have to endure if word slipped out. But you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought. It didn't last as long as I thought. And I kept on with my tap dance class. Now, once again, this is a class for adults. There's me as a 16-year-old. There's another girl there. Her name was Peggy Whitmore. She was probably around the same age as I was. And then there were a bunch of legitimate adults in the class. I mean, people in their 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s. But as the year progressed, one by one, all of the real adults started dropping out of the class until by the end of the year, in May of 1977, there were only two of us left in the class, and those were the two teenagers, myself and Peggy Whitmore. So all the classes had to do a dance that they had been working on during the course of the year and perform it for a recital. And Peggy Whitmore and I, being the only two left, did a duet to a song called Thou Swell. It was the kind of music that was done especially to be tap danced to. And we had a great time doing it. It was very, very exciting to be out in front of an audience and actually performing. But also, unbeknownst to me, during these recitals, they would have all the different classes do all their different numbers, the little kids, as well as the teenagers. But every year, after all those individual numbers were completed, there was a big production that was done that was based upon a musical. And whatever musical it was that would be performed that year was selected by Mr. Smith. Now, getting back to Robert Smith, he was always Mr. Smith. He insisted on discipline in his classes. Nobody called him Bob. Nobody called him Robert. Everybody called him Mr. Smith. Even the adults in the adult class before they dropped out, Mr. Smith. And he wasn't heavy-handed with the discipline in his class. Everybody understood from the way he conducted himself that this was serious business, this wasn't goof-off time, and everybody behaved accordingly. But the musical that Mr. Smith had picked for the end of that year was The Boyfriend. I had never heard of it before. I've rarely heard of it since, but it was a musical that was set in the Roaring Twenties, and there were a lot of fun songs in it. Well, what was going on with that musical is generally what goes on with every musical or every kind of dance performance, which is that there are a lot of girls who are available, but there are very few boys. Boys are hard to come by in the dance world, at least compared to girls, because of course a lot more girls are interested in studying dance than are boys. And at some point early in 1977, Mr. Smith came to me and asked if I would help out and if I would be part of this musical because he was having trouble getting enough boys to fill the chorus. So I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So what I ended up doing was going to the studio, not only on Friday evenings for my tap class, but also on weekend afternoons for rehearsal. And this was when I was introduced to all the other kids who were my age, who were not in the beginning dance class on Friday nights, but they were taking their advanced classes during the week. And there were a lot of wonderful girl dancers. There were a lot of wonderful boy dancers, all of whom were around my age. And many of them are, of course, cast as the leads in this show. So because I was part of this chorus, I spent a lot of time not only learning the chorus numbers and practicing those, but also sitting by and observing all the other dancers, the ones who really were good, the ones who knew what they were doing, the ones who had been studying for a long time. And what I quickly found out is that if I wanted to be a really good dancer, I had to do more than just study tap. I had to not only study jazz dance, but I also had to study ballet. And that was not something that immediately appealed to me. But I soon realized that all of these other dancers, boys and girls who knew what they were doing, who were my age, had been studying tap, had been studying jazz, and also had been studying ballet. 
And I also began to realize that when I was watching Gene Kelly tap dance, the reason he was so good at tap dancing was because he didn't just know how to tap dance. He also did ballet. He also did jazz. And it was his abilities in those other forms of dance that made his tap dancing so athletic and so wonderful to watch. So the next year rolled around, and it's September of 1977, and Radio Free Mormon is attending a beginning ballet class and wearing a t-shirt and tights. And I've got to tell you, one whole wall is mirrors. That's one of the things that I hated about dancing is that in the dance studio, you have an entire wall, the front wall that is covered with mirrors because you've got to be able to see yourself while you're dancing. I hated looking at myself in the mirror. The one thing in the world that I wanted to look at least of all was myself. But because I was essentially forced to, I got used to it. And going into ballet class as a beginner at the age of 17 now, wearing tights for the first time, the only boy in the class, by the way, that I couldn't help but think when I looked in the mirror that I bore a strong resemblance to a frog. Ballet was not easy. It was one of the most difficult things that I've ever tried to learn. But I kept at it and I kept at it. And eventually I got really, really mediocre. You thought I was going to say good, didn't you? No, I never got good at ballet. At best, I was mediocre. The problem was my body. I did not have a body. I still don't have a body, but even then I didn't have a body that was a good body for ballet. I had no arch, I had no turnout, and I had no extension. I was a triple threat. As one of my professors in dance in college said after my mission, Radio Free Mormon, you have the soul of a dancer trapped in the body of a linebacker. So I was ne- Are you talking out there? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm recording. Let's knock it off. <laughs> wow, that's good. Okay, I'll tell you that story here in a second. But really, geez, everybody's a critic. So even though I love dance with all of my heart, I was never going to set the world on fire. But that's okay because I had a great time anyway. So by the second year of my training, once again, the musical is coming around at the end of the year. And this year, it's going to be Annie Get Your Gun. Also, by this point, all the other teenage boys had left the studio, which kind of left only me as the viable candidate for a leading role. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. So largely because there was nobody else around to choose from, I ended up getting cast as Frank Butler, the male lead opposite Annie in Annie Get Your Gun. Of course, in Annie Get Your Gun, Annie is the star of the show. Everybody else plays second fiddle to Annie in Annie Get Your Gun. I remember coming home when I found out that I was cast as the lead in this show and telling my dad that I got the lead in Annie Get Your Gun, and he replied, well, so which one are you, Annie or the gun? But the real reason I was excited was because the girl who was cast to play Annie, the one that I got to have the romantic interest with in the show, was the most beautiful girl in the entire studio. In fact, the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen in my entire life. And her name was Carmen. So I was thrilled at being able to be her romantic interest, even if it was only make-believe, in the show. And I'm happy to report that through a very fortunate series of unusual events, that very same Carmen is now my fiancé. True story. And no, that voice you heard earlier was not Carmen. It was Stacy, the local receptionist, who may or may not be shortly looking for a new job. So now the third year rolls around, and now I'm studying jazz and ballet and tap, but I'm not in the beginner's class anymore. I'm with the other kids, the other kids who are my age who have been doing this ever since they were little. And I'm definitely the weakest person in the class, but I have to struggle to try and keep up. I remember 
We would go around to different places and we would perform dances. Mr. Smith had his own line, his own dancers, the Robert Smith dancers. And they had wonderful costumes and they would get up there and they would dance in front of an audience. And I would generally go around and I would be the MC. That's kind of how I fit in. I was the MC who's studying dance on the side, but the real dancers were up there and performing for the audience. And I remember I'd watch them perform their numbers and be astonished that they could get all the way through a three-minute routine without making a mistake because that was something that was completely beyond me. Getting through a routine without making a mistake, without making multiple mistakes, could not do it. But I found out that with a lot of practice and a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of study, I finally was able to get to the point where I could perform a routine without goofing it up as well. But that was at the end of three years of studying dance. And it was still kind of hit and miss on that score. Sometimes I'd make it all the way through, sometimes I'd make a mistake. Like I say, I was the weak link. But the musical that Mr. Smith had picked for the last year was Guys and Dolls. Once again, we're having trouble recruiting boys. I've been studying as long as any other boy who's still at the studio, so I get to be cast as Sky Masterson, one of the male leads in the show. And this guy, Sky Masterson, is supposed to be a smooth talker and a quintessential gambler. And I got to dress in a gray double-breasted suit and a matching fedora. So I had a fantastic time. I'm looking forward so much to the recital to perform this role of Sky Masterson in the musical at the end of all the other dance numbers. And it was maybe a day or two before the show, and I'm at home, nobody else is at home except for my brother Cam, and I am aware that I need a haircut. I don't need a haircut all over my head, but my hair is starting to creep down the back of my neck. And it's getting way too long there, kind of like it is now after about 50 days on lockdown because of the coronavirus. And I do not want to be appearing as Sky Masterson in front of an entire audience with hair growing down the back of my neck. So I figure Cam can help me out here. Mom's not home, but Cam is. Any port in a storm. Now my mom had taken to saving money by giving her boys haircuts using this gizmo that was like a plastic comb you would hold in your hand and you would put a razor blade into it and then you would comb the person's hair and give them a haircut that way. Now part of this ordeal was that she would wet our hair. She put water all over our hair in order to facilitate the combing or in other words the haircut with the razor blade. But it didn't seem to make any difference how much water she put on her hair. It was always an agonizing ordeal. There was at least as much tugging and pulling with that razor blade comb as there was actual cutting of the hair. So as I say, my mom's not home. My dad's not home. I have no idea where they were, but it's me and Cam home alone on this particular afternoon. And I've got too much hair on the back of my neck and I want to trim. And I say to Cam, Cam, can you take this razor blade comb that mom uses and give me a haircut, not a total haircut, okay, because it's a scam, right? Not a total haircut, but just a little trim on the back to take care of the hair on the back of my neck. It wouldn't be a long job, it wouldn't be a hard job, and I figured, yeah, even Cam can handle this. Of course, that was a critical miscalculation on my part. So Cam, ever being agreeable, ever being helpful, says, yeah, he'd be happy to do this for me and give me this trim on the back of my neck. So I sit down on a chair in the living room and Cam gets the comb, gets the razor blade comb and starts going to work on the back of my neck. 
And he's back there and he is working, he's working, he's working. I'm thinking about all my dance numbers for the upcoming musical and I'm occupied in my head thinking about these and all of a sudden I come out of my reverie and I realize that Cam has been working on the back of my neck for a very long time. And in fact, he's been working on the same place on my neck for a very long time. He hasn't been moving from side to side across the back of my hair. No, it's all in one place. And I stop and I say, Cam, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm giving you a trim. And I go into the bathroom. (laughs) I go into the bathroom. I get a hand mirror so I can use the mirror that's on the wall and the hand mirror and get a look as to what's been going on in the back of my neck. And to my horror, Cam has used that razor comb to dig a ravine down the middle of the back of my neck at least two inches higher than it should be. Cam has literally dug a trench in my hair halfway up the back of my head. I can see my scalp through it. It goes all the way down to the skin, top to bottom. I couldn't believe it. I have to go on stage as Sky Masterson, as well as in all the other dance numbers, in one or two days' time, and I'm going to be looking like an absolute idiot because of this haircut that my brother Cam gave me. That's why I said it was a critical miscalculation on my part. My mom gets home. I show her the problem. I'm probably in tears by now. She does what she can to make it look better, but all she can do is even it off at the top point of this ravine that Cam had dug in my head. So I end up having the hairline on the back of my head be two inches higher than any normal person at the time would have their hairline. Well, what to do, what to do? What can we do with this? How can we make it look any good? So we ended up using brown shoe polish and putting shoe polish on the back of my head under the new hairline down about two inches and hoped that it would be able to look normal enough to fool an audience seated some distance away. So that year, in June of 1978, by the way, the same month I got baptized into the LDS Church, but I was also performing as Sky Masterson in a big musical production, and this cool, urbane, sophisticated character that I was playing had shoe polish on the back of his head. And you know, now that I think about it, I must have had the same goofy haircut when I got baptized. What do you know? But now I've been talking a lot about me and not a lot about Mr. Smith. You see, Mr. Smith is always there. He's always the one who's teaching every class. He's the one who's doing the choreography for the musicals. He is the hub around which all the other spokes revolve at the studio. And I'm just one of the spokes, and I'm not even a very important spoke. But he is the hub. He's making everything happen. And I remember one time during this year of 1978 to 1979, the year that we put on Guys and Dolls, that Mr. Smith took a bunch of his teenage dancers, including me, to a production of Guys and Dolls that was then playing in downtown Seattle. We had a great time. We all got back to the studio probably around 11 o'clock at night. And Mr. Smith went into the studio. He wanted us all to come into the studio. He turned on the lights and he began to teach us some new choreography. Now, the choreography that he was teaching us was new choreography. Every year, Mr. Smith would go to Washington, D.C. as part of being a member of Dance Congress. That's what I think it was called, Dance Congress. And this is where dance teachers would go to a big convention once a year and they would learn new routines. And this year, when Mr. Smith had gone to Dance Congress in Washington, D.C., there was a person there from a chorus line. And this person had taught all the teachers, including Mr. Smith, the original choreography to the famous musical number, One, from a chorus line. So here we are in Auburn, Washington, a small town in western Washington, at the Auburn School of Dance and Music, 
It is really around midnight now, and we're all at the studio, and Mr. Smith is teaching us this choreography from a chorus line. And it was a wonderful time, it was a magical time, and it was at that point, if not earlier, that it really sunk in that this was not just about making money for Mr. Smith to have his dance studio and have his students there paying tuition for him to teach them dance. This was about much more than that. This was about his love for dance and his love for his students because he wasn't getting paid any extra money to be there at midnight teaching his students this choreography. And in fact, he wasn't making any additional money every year coming up with this new musical to put on at the end of the recital and all the weekend rehearsals that were necessary in order to get ready for it. He didn't get paid a dime for any of that extra work. His heart was in dance. His love was for his students, and all of his students recognized it, felt it, and we reciprocated that love back to him. And in fact, it was that very story about Mr. Smith teaching us all the choreography to the musical number one from a chorus line that I told all of the people assembled at his memorial service two years ago to illustrate to them what a great teacher and a great person Mr. Smith was and how much he had meant to me in my life. In fact, as listeners to this program know, I was baptized in June of 1978. I left on my mission in November of 1979. And of course, like all missionaries, at least at the time, I had a farewell program during sacrament meeting at church the Sunday before I flew to Utah to the MTC. And guess who was present for my farewell? Mr. Smith. I actually still have a picture of me and Mr. Smith and Tommy, another guy from the studio, standing in the parking lot outside the Stakes Center in Sumner, Washington, right after my farewell. That picture is in a nice black frame, and I'm looking at it right now because it's here on a bookshelf across from me in my underground bunker. And now it has been two years to the day, May 7th, 2020, that Mr. Smith passed away. Not only was Mr. Smith at my farewell for my mission, but it has now been a mission's length of time since Mr. Smith passed away. As I am recording these words, I miss you, Mr. Smith. I love you, Mr. Smith. Thank you, Mr. Smith, for being such an important part of my life. And now, in honor of Mr. Smith, I would like to read a little essay that I wrote a few years ago. It details an experience I had, not when I was studying dance with Mr. Smith, but after I'd gotten back from my mission and I was majoring in dance at the University of Texas at Austin. I have written a number of things over the years, but this one essay is, in my estimation at least, among the very best of the things that I have written. It is titled, A Mormon in the Dance Department, and it has to do with an encounter I had with a friend of mine in the dance department on the day I discovered that he was a homosexual. So here's how it goes, a Mormon in the dance department. It was easy to hate homosexuals before I met one. And I met a homosexual for the first time on a city bus in Austin in the fall of 1982. I was a freshman in the dance department at the University of Texas, having recently returned from a mission to Japan. I was very nervous my first day in college in September of 1982 and can still remember my delight in seeing a familiar face. It was the face of Chris Caswell. I knew Chris from the summer musical production of The Most Happy Fella that we were both in earlier that year. Chris and I had struck up a friendship during the summer show and it increased at college where we had several classes together. We would often ride the city bus home after classes were over. I lived in southwest Austin with my family at the time. 
The city bus line didn't go all the way to my house, but terminated at a mall miles away from my home. I would ride the bus to the mall and then wait for my dad to come pick me up. Sometimes that took a while. Sometimes a long while. On this particular day, Chris asked me if my dad could possibly give him a ride to his house from the mall. Chris's car was in the shop. Chris was concerned about inconveniencing my dad. I told him I didn't think it would be a problem. We got on the bus after class. It was a sunny, warm fall day. We were seated together. Chris was next to the window. He was intently reading a book. After a while, I asked him what book he was reading. It's not really a book, Chris said. It's a play. Oh, I said. What play is it? Chris said, it's called Bent. What's it about, I asked. It's about homosexuals, came the reply. Why are you reading a play about homosexuals, I asked. Yes, I actually asked that question. Why are you reading a play about homosexuals, I asked. Chris closed the book, turned his head, and looked me in the face. Because I am one. At that point, my entire world shifted. The city bus kept happily trundling down the street. The bright Texas sun kept shining outside. Chris returned to reading his play. But inside me, sirens sounded and red lights flashed. The world seemed to cant at a crazy angle. I became short of breath. I think I managed to squeak out a weak O oh, in response. I tried to make it sound as casual as possible, like Chris wasn't the first person in the world who had ever flat out told me he was homosexual. I had joined the LDS Church in 1978, just out of high school. The LDS Church taught me some wonderful things, but it also taught me some things that maybe weren't so wonderful. It taught me that the disgust and loathing I felt for homosexuals was acceptable. And not just acceptable, it was righteous. It was how God felt. Maybe not in so many words, but the message was there all the same. The LDS Church made me comfortable with my prejudice. And now, here I was, sitting on a bus with a friend of mine named Chris Caswell, who had just come out to me. Being involved in dance since I was 16, I had known other guys I thought might be gay, but I didn't know for sure, and so it wasn't an issue. I didn't want it to be an issue, and so I didn't let it be an issue. I sort of knew that it wouldn't be an issue for me until I met someone I really, really knew was gay. And now I had. I didn't say anything else to Chris for the rest of the bus ride. I was busy dealing with emotional turmoil. Worlds were colliding within me. The world of my visceral disgust for homosexuals was colliding with the world of my friendship with Chris. I liked Chris. He was a good guy. A friend. How could he be a homosexual? And yet there was no denying that he was. I mean, he had just told me so to my face. I wanted that bus ride to be over more than anything in the world. I needed to be alone. No, I needed to be away from Chris. I needed to recover from this lightning strike. And then I remembered that Chris was going to be waiting with me at the mall until my dad arrived. Sometimes my dad was there waiting for the bus when it got there. Sometimes I had to wait at the mall for my dad to show up. Sometimes I had to wait for a long time. Please, dear God, I prayed inwardly, let my dad be at the mall when the bus gets there. An eternity later, the bus pulled into the mall parking lot. 
into the line. Everybody off. I swiveled my head back and forth as the bus came to a stop. My eyes scanned the parking lot, looking desperately for my dad's car. It wasn't there. My heart sank. Now I was going to have to stand in the parking lot with Chris waiting for my dad to get there. And who knew how long that might be? I was going to have to pretend everything was okay. I was going to have to act natural like everything in the world hadn't changed between me and Chris. I did not think I was going to be able to do it. I was in shock. Literally. I was so very far from home. We got off the bus and stood in the parking lot. I tried to make small talk with Chris, but it came off as weak and stilted. This was one of the most awkward experiences of my life. Where in hell was my dad? It was painfully obvious to me I was doing a terrible job of acting normal. You could cut the tension with a knife. Finally, Chris said, Do you think this is going to be a problem? Oh no, not at all, I gushed with fake enthusiasm. It's not a problem for me at all that you are homosexual. There's nothing wrong with being a homosexual, as far as I'm concerned. I was babbling. Chris cocked his head at me and said, I meant about your dad giving me a ride home. There was one beat of stunned silence on my part. Then I threw my head back and laughed. I laughed long and loud and hard. Chris joined in with my laughter. The laughter flushed out the shock. The laughter flushed out the awkwardness. The laughter flushed out the panic. And the laughter brought me back to friendship. Friendship with Chris. Friendship with a homosexual. The two were now one and the same. The adjustments to my religious views were just beginning. But I knew one thing for certain. With Chris Caswell as my friend, I could no longer simply hate homosexuals. With Chris Caswell as my friend, I was one step closer to home. But home wasn't the place I left that morning, and home was a place I had never been. But I was on my way, and on a path different from the one I started out on. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.